Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, California's catastrophic fires, air pollution, and brutal heat waves are the effects of climate change. And as the New York Times stated yesterday, the changes are locked in, along with more destructive tropical storms to the east and other predictions scientists made decades ago. Gone is the climate of yesteryear, and there's no going back. Into this sobering reality has come a welcome anthology titled All We Can Save, featuring the reflections of more than 40 women, including scientists, artists, farmers, and teachers who grieve for what the world has already lost and refuse to give up on the rest. We'll talk with the anthology's editors after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In the introduction to their new anthology on the climate crisis, Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson and Catherine Wilkinson acknowledge that it is too late to save everything. Quote, some ecological damage is irreparable. Some species are already gone. Ice has already melted. Lives have already been lost. But they also remind us that it is far too soon to give up on the rest. It's time, they say, to radically reshape society and long past time to hear from and center women. In their anthology that dropped yesterday, All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions to the Climate Crisis, Johnson and Wilkinson have collected the essays and poetry of more than 40 women leading on climate, including scientists, artists, indigenous women, rural women, and women of color. They join us now. Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson is a marine biologist, founder of the think tank Urban Ocean Lab and consulting firm Ocean Collective. She's also co-creator of the Blue New Deal, a roadmap for including the ocean in climate policy. Welcome to Forum, I on Elizabeth Johnson. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Dr. Catherine Wilkinson, Principal Writer and Editor-in-Chief at Project Drawdown, focused on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. She's the author of Drawdown, The Drawdown Review, and Between God and Green. Welcome to you as well, Catherine Wilkinson. Thank you so much, Mina. And thanks for saying that our book dropped yesterday because it feels like a super hot mixtape and that is exactly the vibe we're trying to bring into the world. (laughs) My pleasure. Well, congratulations on it. I mean, it is really a wonderful piece of work. And, you know, one of the things that really does come out, Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, is that you know, to save as much as we can, we need everyone, but that the climate space hasn't done a really good job of including everyone. Is that in part what inspired this anthology? Oh, gosh, there's so many things that inspired this anthology. I think, you know, number one among them was just being like, we know so many incredible women doing super critical work that 
nobody knows about. Um, and, and people need to know and their work needs to be supported. Um, and, and their successes should be replicated. And, and, and the diversity of ways to, to contribute to climate solutions was something that we were really committed to highlighting with this book. Yeah, The diversity of people carrying those forward, but also just how many different things need to be done. And why do so few people know about the things that you know and saw and read? Um, white, suprem- pre- white supremacist patriarchy, I think. Just like our <laughs> society <a> doesn't <laughs> listen to um, everyone equally. Catherine Wilkinson, the introduction opened with the story of Elizabeth Foote. Can you tell us who she was? Because I think it really illuminates what Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson is describing. <laughs> As Diana was talking, I was just thinking, oh man, Eunice. Uh, yes. So Eunice Newton Foote back in- Oh, sorry. Eight- yeah, Eunice. no problem. <laughs> Eunice. Um, we feel at this point like we're on a first name basis with her. Um, back in 1856, she published a paper connecting the dots between carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and planetary warming. And she did that three years before the Irish physicist John Tyndall published his own and albeit uh, more detailed work on the same topic. And he is heralded as the grandfather of climate science. And Eunice Newton Foote was basically forgotten slash dismissed until a decade ago. And what we really love about Eunice is that Not only was she an amazing climate scientist, despite not having access to institutions and resources and all the things that someone like Tyndall had access to as a man, she also was a signatory to the Seneca Falls Declaration. So the the manifesto from the first women's rights convention in the United States. And her husband was a signatory as well, um, along with Frederick Douglass and some other uh, very enlightened men of the time. So we think of her as perhaps the first climate feminist. And what's interesting is that it isn't just what women say and how women were treated in terms of getting their research out there and their knowledge out there, but it's also the importance of focusing on gender and striving for gender equity as a strategy for addressing climate issues. And I know this is something Mm -hmm. that you focused on quite a bit. If you could just talk a little bit about what you mean by that. Absolutely. So when the dots get connected between gender and climate, it's usually on the topic of victimhood, uh, which is, you know, it's an important thing for us to understand that climate impacts are vulnerability and injustice multipliers. So because we have a system today where women and girls are not on equal footing, they are even more at risk and sometimes uniquely at risk from things like extreme weather disasters and food shortages and these sorts of things. Um, But that's not the whole story. And and it ends there all too often. Because when you have that kind of intimacy with the impacts of the problem, you are necessarily more equipped to think about solutions. And that's Mm -hmm. something that 
Um, I've really learned a lot from Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland and self-proclaimed angry granny for climate justice. <laughs> um, and, and the thing is, there is no gender equal future on a burning planet. So bold climate action is just as important for people who care about gender equality as it is folks who care about, about the Arctic. Um, and so we have to be understanding these things as profoundly interconnected. And we have to be understanding that, you know, when the story of Eunice gets repeated all too often today, right, with women who are, as we like to imagine Eunice saying, I literally just said that, dude. <laughs> um, right? Like We're missing out on brilliance and ideas. And like we, we know, for example, how tiny the quantity of philanthropic funding is that goes mm -hmm. to women and climate. Um, and that's just not going to cut it. We've got way too much women good of color, And especially women of color. And even on, I mean, just a practical level too, the more that people invest in the kind of work that women are doing, if they're farming, right? And, and you mm -hmm. give them the resources, as you've pointed out, to farm more land, you need, you don't need to cut down as many forests or clear more land. Or if women are educated and invited into the education space in other countries, that they're less likely to need to have lots of children, uh, which can also put a strain on resources. Those are sort of more you international. Used... Sorry, go ahead. I'm just going to say you use the word practical. And mm -hmm. I think that's a really important word in this context, because, you know, what is impractical is to ignore half of the brain power and ingenuity um, and energy uh, of the planet, of humanity on, you know, how can we expect to solve the climate crisis without women? Like, why would you, why would we tie one hand behind our back like that? And so the point of the book is certainly not, um, you know, this needs to be only women or led exclusively by women, but saying right. like, hey, like we need to deliberately welcome in the expertise and brilliance of women working on climate if we want to succeed from a purely practical and tactical perspective. Um, men just don't have all the answers and all the solutions um, and nor do women. So let's just, let's get it together. Like we're showing, you know, these examples and they're just examples. There are so many more um, of dozens of women who are doing incredible work on climate and we should all be listening to supporting um, and replicating um, the critical work that they're doing. And in this particular case, Sian Elizabeth Johnson, you decided to focus um, on contributions from women in the U.S. Why did you want to keep it to the mm -hmm. U.S.? Well, it's hard enough to narrow down the list. If we had the whole world, this book would be <laughs> massive. I mean, our book contract was supposed to be for like a 20 essay, 60,000 word <laughs> book. And it sort of grew and grew. It was like 25. And then, you know, no, we really need like 32 pieces to tell the full story. And then it was like, you know, 39 and then 41. And then our publisher was like, we're cutting you off. <laughs> You're done. <laughs> it's 135,000 words. Um and, but there really is, you know, something in there for everyone. Um, and we did give us the chance to include, as you said, farmers, but also architects and artists and journalists and policy experts and lawyers um, and scientists, of course. And um, 
showing the breadth of work that's that's being mm-hmm. done and needs doing was really important to us. Yeah. But also, you know, the focus and sort of to get that depth within the U.S. context um, was an Im- important contribution we thought to the literature because, you know, the U.S. has is the biggest culprit as far as historical greenhouse gas emissions, mm-hmm. and we've really not carried our weight in terms of. Um, leading the world on climate solutions and reducing our emissions. Um, And so we thought, like, let's talk to a U.S. audience and highlight U.S. leaders, um, because this is basically a book, you know, that's really focused on how do we get our act together here? There is, you know, so much brilliance around the world from climate leaders in countries on all continents. Um, But because we had to constrain the book, we thought, like, let's focus on getting our our house in order here first. Yes. Catherine Wilkinson, did you want to add anything to the U.S.'s role or that lack thereof, I guess, on climate change? I mean, in in so many ways, we are holding the world hostage right now, right, Mm. with denial and delay, delay even from people who say they understand the situation that we're in. And I think a lot about that it's not just the message, it's the messenger. Um, And Mm. so thinking about who are the right messengers with the right message for a given audience. And I think that comes together really well in this book. Um, Truthfully for, you know, an international collection like this, Ayana and I probably wouldn't be the best messengers because we focus here. We're talking with Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson and Katherine Wilkinson about their new anthology released yesterday, All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions to the Climate Crisis, which includes essays and poetries by more than 40 women leading on climate. And after the break, we'll speak to them about what writings really resonated with them in the book. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. To save as much as we can, climate leadership needs to be more faithfully feminist, which is wide open to people of any gender, say Catherine Wilkinson and Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. Their new anthology aims to advance a more representative, nuanced, and solution-oriented public conversation on the climate crisis and be a guide, they say, to knowing and holding what has already been done to the world while bolstering the resolve to never give up on our collective future. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson is a marine biologist, founder of the think tank Urban Ocean Lab and consulting firm Ocean Collective. She's also co-creator of the Blue New Deal, a roadmap for including the ocean in climate policy. And Catherine Wilkinson is principal writer and editor-in-chief at Project Drawdown. She's the author of Drawdown, the Drawdown River, and Between God and Green. And both of them co-edited the new anthology, All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. And we want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What would effective climate leadership look like? How has the ongoing worsening climate news affected you and and your outlook? What has made it hard to act in the face of worsening climate-related disasters? Or what has motivated you even in the face of it? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. 
And Catherine Wilkinson, I was wondering, as you were going through so many of these essays, which really stood out to you and why? Oh, gosh. Um, I love and hate this question. (laughs) (laughs) I feel similarly um, because we love every inch of this book. Um, But I will say, I think the thing that was uniquely meaningful is that most of the writing in this anthology is new writing. And that meant that we got to work intimately with many of the contributors to tell their story for the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, there's an exquisite piece by Marianne Hitt, who spent the last decade leading the Beyond Coal campaign and now heads up all of the campaigns at the Sierra Club. And she so generously distilled what they have learned from that 10 years of shutting down coal plants in the U.S., um, really helping catalyze a movement towards a truly clean grid. Um, it's not enough just to put our, our pedal on the, the EV gas, uh, <laughs> so to speak, of solar and wind. We also have to put the brakes on the sources of the problem. And um, those were the essays, just seeing people's wisdom take shape um, and knowing that it will reach so many people um, and be nourishing and helpful for so many people was just incredibly exciting. It it did almost read like also a primer for just grassroots organizing as well. Yeah, totally. What about you, Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson? Oh, I mean, it depends on the day. Um, (laughs) And I think that's, you know, part of the beauty of it is that, you know, we're already finding for people who have, you know, had advanced copies of the book that they are already, it's like there's an essay for each moment, for Mm -hmm. each emotion, right? Like if you're feeling overwhelmed, um, you know, you can, there, there's a whole feel section of the book that, um, has essays about grappling with just the enormity um, and and anxiety and fear um, that is associated with getting our heads around the climate crisis. You know, if you're feeling um, like as a parent, this is a really tough thing to handle. There's a, a beautiful essay by Amy Westervelt on mothering in a time of crisis. Um, I think the the piece that is coming to mind for me today as particularly powerful is an essay called Dear Fossil Fuel Executives, which is written by Cameron Russell, who is a supermodel, like Vogue cover model, runway model, all that stuff, who is an incredible writer and lays out the parallels between the fossil fuel industry and the fashion industry in terms of ways they are exploiting labor and destroying the planet um, and showing what it looks like as the fashion industry starts to find a better way forward and challenging the fossil fuel industry to become an energy industry um, and transform the way they do business. Um, and, and I think that there are two things ab- about her essay um, that I think are really powerful. One, it's just the is the 
she connects so many dots in that piece. Mm. Um, and the second is she was really insistent on putting her essay in the form of a letter, the directness of it, um, and the sort of feminine power of it. She harkens back to letters that, um, in, in sort of convincing us that this was the right structure for her piece, she was referencing letters that women were writing in support of suffrage and in support of um, abolition um, as having been incredibly influential in those movements as they were writing letters to powerful men stating their positions. And she, she considers her piece to be, um, you know, following um, aspiring to follow in in those footsteps. So, um, yeah, that's that's the piece I'm thinking about today. Yes, and in so doing, also modeling an action that can be taken. Uh, let me go to yeah. Anne in Arinda. She's Hi, doing Anne. that also in this election. I mean, she is very involved in efforts to get out the vote, and it's that direct talking to people, right, explaining the stakes um, for climate in particular in this election. You know, couldn't be higher, um, and that direct outreach to people and saying. Like, please hear me out. This is ex- incredibly important, and and you can actually be a part of the solution. So please join me. Yeah, I think caller Ann also has a point along similar lines. Hi, Ann. Hi, thank you. Yes, and I would like to echo that with all the suffering that was caused by the fires and the smoke and our inability to get outside and even breathe um, deeply. Why can't we challenge ourselves, women as leaders? to do at least one thing, one thing for our family to do to help move the needle on climate change. I think that would make a huge difference. It would be very empowering instead of always the doom and gloom. So thank you. And thank you. I mean, Catherine Wilkinson, there's an essay on how to talk about climate change by Catherine Mm. Hayhoe. And I'm wondering if the way it's been discussed has actually also made it difficult for people to be motivated to act. Like, what do we need to do? What are we getting wrong in terms of our conversation around the climate crisis? Yeah, I love I love that piece by Catherine. <clears throat> and it's kind of a uh, along the same lines of the brilliant TED talk she gave uh, about the necessity of talking about climate change, because part of the challenge is that we simply don't hear about it enough. And I think in some ways that's been because it's been relegated to kind of the the purview of experts, right? Like I think sometimes it can feel like, well, if you don't have a PowerPoint full of charts and three PhDs and a speechwriter, like you're probably not invited to this conversation. <laughs> um, and that just couldn't be farther from the truth because the only credential that's needed to be part of this conversation is to be alive on the planet in this moment. And that means we need to have a more expansive and generous dialogue than we have often had on climate, which has felt a lot like kind of beating people up with facts about how bad it is <laughs> and then whiplashing them to technological yeah. solutions with like no space to take a beat and feel some things. And and I, I hope that the book models the kind of climate conversation we need to be having, which is one that allows for our whole humanness to show up. And it's part of the reason why we felt it was really important to include poetry Mm -hmm. in the collection to kind of, you know, sharpen our attention to help us feel our feelings, to know that we're not alone. Um, 
in whatever it is that may be coming up for us as we face the, the truth of where we are, fires, floods, droughts, hurricanes, all the things that are now tearing at our lives and at our communities. Um, and yet also, how do we connect and find that collective courage to rise back up um, and, and do the work that's needed? Yeah, one of the things that you're saying reminds me of the very first essay, and um, the name escapes me, but she was a young person talking about how some people feel they have to know the science before they talk mm -hmm. about it or do something. Mm -hmm. But she says, if you wait until you know everything, it will be too late to do yeah. anything. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. Exactly. Yeah, she. this is a, the first essay in the anthology. Um, it's called Calling In by Shia Bastida, and it's her effort to welcome people, not just to the climate movement, but to the climate justice movement. And one of her insights that she closes that essay with is that to address the climate crisis, that doesn't mean thousands of us doing everything perfectly. It means millions of us doing the best that we can. Um, and I think that's a really important message because we've been sort of hoodwinked by the fossil fuel industry's campaign right out of BP um, to obsess about our own carbon footprints. I mean, the, uh, the concept of a carbon footprint is a marketing campaign from a fossil fuel company, and it has been extremely effective at distracting us and making us just feel guilty all the time about like whether we're allowed to get into a car as opposed to thinking like, why are cars still running on gas when electric cars are wonderful? Um, and why don't we have better public transit? And how are we going to transform what happens when we turn on our lights, where that power comes from, as opposed to obsessing over whether we get to turn them on at all? Um, and I just, I love her piece so much. She's um, just started her freshman year in college. It's great to have two youth um, climate activists as contributors to the book. The other is Alexandria Villasenor, who I think is like a wise 15 years old or something like that, um, who writes a piece called Dear Grownups. And both of them really emphasize the point that this is a multi-generational movement, that um, we all have something to learn from each other and that youth have something to contribute. And, and their contributions in particular are so poignant because of the moral clarity they bring, right? Young people who haven't learned that we, this, this myth that we have to compromise and just say like, we can't compromise on this. This is what the science says requi is required. We need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 50% in the next 10 years. We can't, we can't negotiate about that. We just have to figure out how exactly we're going to do it. And we're going to keep putting pressure until you do. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, the, well, this listener asks, are there essays about each of us taking responsibility for helping to alleviate this problem, not building huge homes, not buying stuff, not flying, not having second homes, not eating beef? Uh, you know, one of the essays, yeah. and you can answer that, and also just wanted to mention that one of the essays that felt accessible and felt like there were things that I could do and it was okay to start small was this essay by Leah Stokes that I had read that mm -hmm. also spoke to yeah. me in that way, where your mm -hmm. impact sort of expands with every step you take almost kind of naturally. Yeah. I, Catherine I was Wilkinson. exactly thinking about Leah's essay in this moment. Um, she, 
she uses a line from Rilke to set the essay up um, with this idea of moving in widening circles and allowing the work that we do in climate to move in widening circles towards the kinds of collective systemic change that is needed. So essentially moving towards the work of social movements um, and and taking our, our place within those. But I think I would be remiss in the context of this question, not also to mention the report that Oxfam just released, that the 1% richest people on the planet, which is really just a threshold of about $100,000 annually, um, annual income, surpass the bottom half of the world in terms of income with their carbon emissions. So this is an issue of extravagance at the same time. And so I think we can hold both of those, right? We mm. can hold the necessity of fundamental change to our transportation systems, our electricity grid, um, our food system. And also we can think about how to bring our own lives more into alignment with the kind of future that we want to create. And it's making me think also about an essay by Sherry Mitchell in the first section of the book as well. Sherry's uh, an indigenous land rights uh, attorney and teacher and author of incredible writings, including Sacred Instructions. And she talks about a teaching from her community about the, the meaning of enough. And she talks about mm. these two terms, Alabezu and Mama Bezu, and the holding together of making sure that each individual has enough and that everyone has enough. And we know that on a finite planet, we can't maximize for a small set of individuals and take care of everyone. So I, I do think we need a fundamental rebalancing um, on that and, and holding the needs of the collective in mind. Um, Ayana and I are not imagining a future of billionaire bunkers uh, as the way forward. <laughs> well, this listener writes, <laughs> this book's focus in the US is perfect. I volunteered in India and Nicaragua in the 60s and 70s. I was in my teens and 20s. I'm 74 now. It was perfectly clear to me that much of the oppressive and bad behaviors affecting the planet were emanating from the U.S. I vowed mm -hmm. to come back to the U.S. and do everything I could to get the U.S. back on a better mm. track. Let me go yeah. to Minnie in Beaumont, California. Hi, Minnie. Just a, a, oh, oh, sure. Ayanna uh, Johnson, did you want to react to that comment? Uh, just a, a quick response to that. I mean, I think we've allowed ourselves and, you know, supported by a lot of the media reporting to think that climate change was something that would just affect poor people, brown people in other places far away. And like, oh, that's too bad, right? For the people in Bangladesh who will, you know, the, the 12 million of them who will lose their homes because of sea level rise. Um, and this year, finally, sort of, it's become impossible to ignore that climate change is on our own doorstep. It's coming for all of us. It's just a matter of when and in what form. And so, you know, we really did want to, to say like, hey, Americans, like we can't ignore this anymore. And, and here are some, some examples of what's working and some leaders we should be following. Mm -hmm. Well, let me bring Minnie in. Hi, Minnie. Hi, how are you? 
I'm enjoying your show very much. Thank you for taking this on. Well, thanks for calling in. What's on your mind? Um, well, I think um, a lot of times I hear the conversation about climate change and the effects on the environment um, that fossil fuels have and all of that. I never hear anything about um, agriculture and um, such a huge impact it has on the lives of brown people, on the lives of children that are starving in those countries that are being um, developed just to grow food to feed animals for us here in the West. Um, it also has such a huge impact on the environment, on their lives, and then also when we eat it on our health. So at this time with this pandemic, also um, all of these people that are eating these diets in the United States are being also effective by the pandemic. They are dying in, in higher numbers. Unfortunately, indigenous people like me, um, people of color, I work in healthcare, so I see this every day. So I'm just I'm hoping that someone will tackle um, the food system here in the United States and um, also talk about the impact that agriculture has, not only on the environment, but on all these uh, underprivileged people and our health. We're, we're literally what we eat. Well, Minnie, we will tackle your points and question after the break. Thanks so much for sharing that. Again, we're talking about the climate and about climate leadership and pursuing a more feminine and feminist-focused climate leadership. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, co-creator of the Blue New Deal, a roadmap for including the ocean and climate policy, and Dr. Catherine Wilkinson, author of Drawdown, The Drawdown Review, and Between God and Green. They co-edited a new anthology, All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. And you, our listeners, can join us by calling 866-733-6786, emailing us at forum at kqed.org, or reaching us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And uh, Catherine Wilkinson, did you want to take a stab at Minnie's question and point about agriculture? Yeah, I really appreciate that question from Minnie. Um, it's kind of good uh, rule of thumb to think about roughly 75% of the climate problem uh, is caused by fossil fuels and the things that we do with them. The other quarter is about how we grow our food <laughs> and what we do on land. So it certainly has a big role to play. And in the work that we have done at Project Drawdown, not only is there an important role for advancing things like better ways of farming that have lower emissions, um, advancing plant-rich diets, addressing food waste, but there's also a huge opportunity on the, not to get too wonky, the, the carbon sinks side of the equation. So regenerative Farming methods like no-till agriculture, cover crops, which, you know, maybe a century ago we would have just called farming. <laughs> um, <laughs> these are also ways to, to begin to bring some of that excess carbon in the atmosphere back home um, and kind of get back into better balance with our planet's living systems. And, and as many was pointing out, emissions and carbon are only one of the many, many reasons to pursue those kinds of agriculture-related, food-related solutions. A more resilient food system that can withstand climate impacts is really important. Um, eating more 
nourishing, healthful food is really important. Um, and moving towards a system that does not have so much labor injustice um, mm -hmm. built into it is also really important. And this is something that Ayana uh, knows quite intimately because her mother is a regenerative farmer. Yeah. Um, and my mom actually has a poem in the anthology called Notes from a Climate Victory Garden hmm. with some of her lessons over the last 18 years um, after retiring from being an English teacher um, about, um, about that, about, about how nature can heal itself. Um, yeah. And we have a whole section of the anthology called Nourish. There's an essay by Leah Penniman, who is um, a black farmer upstate New York, focusing on food sovereignty, um, land reparations, um, and training a next generation of farmers of color. Um, there's an essay by Emily Stengel, who's the co-founder and co-executive director of Green Wave, talking about regenerative farming of the ocean with seaweed and oysters and mussels and clams and how that can be one of the lowest carbon footprint ways to, um, to produce uh, protein and nutritious foods while also helping to heal our seas. Um, we have Judith Schwartz writing about um, the role of water and the water cycle in, as a climate solution. Um, and, Jane and so certainly and Jane Zelikova, <laughs> um, who's a soil ecologist writing about sort of the, the role of microbes in all of this and in creating the ability of soil to absorb um, and sequester tons of carbon. Yeah. Um, the, wee, and, and the, the wee beasties get their the wee beasties, moment in the spotlight. <laughs> and, well, and Denise Ray on the power of seeds. And so we certainly appreciate the importance of agriculture as um, currently um, industrial agriculture, a major problem, um, a contributor to the climate crisis, but also getting it right as um, a critical part of the solution. Well, Minnie, yeah. thanks for raising that. And let me go to caller Lewis in Saratoga. Hi, Lewis. Hi, I just wanted to comment on how uh, the recent pandemic really illustrated to me and many others, I'm sure, about the humanity as a on an earthly level's ability to really enact change. I mean, the world shut down for even just a month and we saw some incredible regeneration of, of the planet. So the, the capability is there, but change is scary and change is difficult for humans. And I think it is one of the problems that we are going to face is just facing our own humanity and our, mm. our own failures to be able to, we're feared, we fear change. Lewis, thank you for that point. I mean, it, it's an interesting one, and it makes me think about the pandemic in terms of both successes and, of course, here in the U.S. as we've felt the failures, right? So do you think the pandemic is, you know, a model for hope potentially or a cautionary tale in terms of how we can respond to something that affects all of us, like climate change? Mm, yeah. I both. I think it's, yeah, both. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been a good teacher, I think. Um we know now, thank you, climate scientists, that even when it felt like everything changed on the planet, um, that in terms of the atmosphere, not very much changed. So our emissions only dropped by 7 or 8%, which, um, as, as Leah Stokes actually brings up in her piece, that's a really good reminder of why we need systemic shifts and not just individual behavior change. But I think it's also 
taught us a lot about what it's going to take to take care of each other going forward. Um, because as bad as this year of climate impacts has been, you know, I think we'll probably look back on it and think like, oh, that was actually pretty manageable 2020. Um, and we have not, I think, especially in this country, done a very good job of taking care of each other in, in the pandemic. Um, and it's also, for me, just been such a stark reminder that our metrics for quote unquote economic health are so deeply disconnected from the things that actually help us be well and healthy um, and and to live, that the market can be soaring as people are getting evicted all over the country um, is, is just such a reminder that extractive capitalism is just not working. Um, and the climate crisis is just one of the ways um, that it's not working and it's not frankly aligned with life's principles. Let me go next to Philip in San Francisco. Hi, Philip. Hi. Uh, first, I just wanted to thank you for your work. Um, I organized with the Sunrise Movement here in the Bay Area and Project Woo-hoo! Drawdown. It's very okay. influential. Um, I just wanted to quickly ask like, what, what you do about the fact that we don't really have that effective climate leadership. Um, we have some good legislators, but every time they try something even close to the scale of the problem, uh, it seems like it gets shut down by various fossil fuel lobbies, like trying to ban single-use plastics. Um, and, you know, that the IPC, uh, IPCC report's 10-year timer just keeps ticking down, and uh, we just don't see it happening. So, you know, I hit these moments where I don't want to read a Wilka poem and relax. You know, I want to set something on fire, which clearly would not be mm. productive in this case. But, you know, <laughs> just what do you do with that? Mm. Thank you. Philip, thanks. Nowhere in this book does it say chill out. I will, <laughs> I will sort of like fear not. That is not a message that um, that comes through. Um, the The role of poetry is to help us sort of re- like see things from a different angle, right? To um, to to figure out what to do with our feelings, because as you described, there's so much frustration and anger and disappointment and fear all wrapped up in this, and we need to like figure out how to to use those emotions to get things done. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, certainly we need to think about, we rushed to get this book out before the election um, in the hopes that it would be a contribution to the, the discourse on, on what's at stake when we vote um, for president all the way down and the stakes couldn't be higher. We just, as you described, the clock is ticking. We do not have time to have four more years of a president who denies climate science when our alternative is, you know, Joe Biden, who has the most aggressive climate policy plan of any U.S. presidential candidate in history, um, which people don't know, right? Because mm-hmm. we are not talking about that issue enough. It is not an issue that's, you know, necessarily going to feature in the debates either. Um, yeah. So that's on us to explain to each other, um, you know, go read Joe's climate plan. It actually says 40% of resources for um, addressing the climate crisis should be going to communities of color. It says we should be 100% renewable energy by 2035. And that is that aggressive of a target because of groups like the Sunrise Movement who said, 
you know, Joe Biden, your initial plan of, of getting us there by 2050 is just not going to cut it. Um, and he listened to scientists and he listened to activists and ha- came out with a much, much better plan last month. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the same is true up and down the ballot. When we think about our city council members who decide whether or not we have, um, you know, are investing in, in good public transit, in composting facilities locally, and in, in all of these climate solutions that we have already at our fingertips. So what we hope this book encourages people to do is get active, not not just read poetry, but to, to use this book as both a balm for, you know, climate weary souls um, and also as a source of inspiration. I mean, Varshini Prakash's essay in this book, and she's the executive director and co-founder of Sunrise Movement, is incredibly motivating. Mm-hmm. Um, the story that she has to tell and sort of opens up what is possible. And the same with Rihanna Gunn-Wrights, who's one of the architects of the Green New Deal, describing sort of how, how that came to be. And I think these stories are instructive in an active way about where we can all fit in and contribute. And on a related note, this listener, Noel, writes, we need to demand that debate moderators ask one climate catastrophe question at each of the presidential debates. Uh, You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, a marine biologist and founder of the think tank Urban Ocean Lab, and Dr. Catherine Wilkinson, principal writer and editor-in-chief at Project Drawdown. And with you, our listeners, tell us where you are at with the climate crisis, what you want to hear more of, what you need to do to motivate, or how you motivate these days, as it is something that is a growing question as more and more see the realities and the consequences of a changing climate. And let me go next to Art in Santa Rosa. Hi, Art. Oh, hi. Thank you so much for getting me on. Uh, I wanted to ask this wonderful person. I'm a diver, and I can really relate to all this stuff. Um, What percentage of driving contributes to climate change? And that being asked, would it not be prudent, this might sound ridiculous, to drop our speed limit down to 55 again? All right, thanks. Catherine Wilkinson? Looked at the specific percentage of just driving. Um, Transport globally is... I want to say it's right around 15%. I'd have to I'd have to go look at the IPCC yeah. numbers. Um Might be a little higher, but yeah, it's 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 a a, a solid portion of what's going on. Yeah, okay. and that of course is not just that's not just passenger, you know, uh kind of individual automobile use. That's also freight shipping and flying and and all the rest, but um G- continue continue art with your question i understand that okay now with that being said is it a wild idea to to uh uh propose dropping the speed limit by 10 miles and thus using yeah. less gas 
I think we need to look at all of the solutions that are available to us, certainly. Um, and, you know, one of the other ones is looking at fuel efficiency of cars, um, which is something that, you know, the Obama administration pushed for increasing fuel efficiency. And we, we really should be um, sort of not just thinking about fuel efficiency, but getting off of gas cars entirely as soon as possible and making that transition. And also, you know, making public transit um systems reach more places um, and more quickly so that people don't need to rely on individual vehicles. I think the reliance on individual cars has a lot of other environmental problems, right? In terms of all the resources that go into making individual cars, all, all of the all of the metal has to come from somewhere, right? So, so thinking through transportation more broadly, I think is yeah. um, it's a major opportunity um, for for climate solutions. Um, but certainly, you know, it it does make sense to think about um, what you described in particular, whether that's the speed limit or or thinking about all of those other things as well. And we kind of, you know, with this book, encourage people to think. Um, think about the ways in which all of those are intertwined. Yeah. Well, Jennifer writes, I earned my master's degree studying plant phys physiological responses and tree seedling to climate change. I left academia because I was studying wow. the problem, but not active, actively coming up with solutions to climate change. Mm -hmm. Now that my kids are older, I want to enter the field, but there are very few jobs in environmental restoration work. I think this stems from the lack mm -hmm. of funding. We need a whole new field of federal work, planting trees and mm -hmm. restoring ecosystems. Any thoughts on yeah. Jennifer's point about the availability of jobs and restoration. Yeah. yeah. What, one quick thing, and I'm sure Catherine has some insights here, um, is that that is, um, that is something that is being considered right now at a federal level. Obviously, we are in a recession um, created by the mismanagement of the pandemic by our current administration. And there's an opportunity to think about what recovery looks like um, and the opportunity to create green jobs while we're investing trillions of taxpayer dollars in um, economic recovery. How can we um, use that to create a climate job core? That's a, a proposal that um, Inslee uh, has put, put forward and has been carried forward by Joe Biden. It's in his new climate plan. Um, so absolutely, people should be able to have jobs, um, opportunities to work for restoring and protecting nature, which we know is, is a significant part um, of our climate solution. Mm. And briefly, Catherine Wilkinson. Um, here, here, Ayana address up brilliantly. And also <laughs> just, uh, we feel you, um, Ayana and I both slogged through PhDs um, only to depart academia um, and try to yeah. uh, kind of get a little bit more intimate with, with solutions. Um, that is not to say that we do not need the exquisite research um, that is that is being done. We absolutely do. But I empathize um, with with kind of that that instinct and that frustration. Well, finally, finally, Carol asks, will this book be out in audio form? I very much want to absorb yes, the messages yes. in <laughs> these essays while gardening, doing my chores and walking. Oh, good. So um, tell Carol about it in our last 30 seconds. On the same day um, as the book yesterday. Um, and it's on sort of like ebook as well. Um, all three are out there for the taking. Um, and you can find links to purchase all of them on our website, All We Can Save dot earth where it also has a page with the biographies of all 60 contributors um and you know all of the the references
references and footnotes, which are hyperlinked on the page. Um, and, and you've got audiobook, some pretty notable people narrating it. it sounds it's like. a pretty big deal. Um, this is something I took on. I was like, no, we're not just going to have anyone read the book. We're going to have like incredible celebrities read this and I will somehow like text all the famous people I know and figure out how to make this happen. Um, and people said yes, because they realized how important it was to make sure these stories were were told and listened to and voiced in a compelling way. So the audiobook readers include Sophia Bush, Jane Fonda, Alana Glazer, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Alfre Woodard, um, Bonnie Turpin, um, who am I missing? Janet Mock, Kimberly <laughs> Drew. Well, there will, um, they will hear a lot of incredible voices. Hate to let you go, Ion Elizabeth Johnson and Catherine Wilkinson, but thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the anthology. Thanks to Ariana Prail for producing this segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.